Okay, that took a lot of time. <laughs> Takes work to be miked, doesn't it? All right, speaking of. All right, so I want to start with uh, any kinds of reflections, questions, comments that you want to start with, and then we're going to look at the story of Joseph. Then we're going to talk a little bit about what is this thing called forgiveness process. So that's where we're headed during this time together. There's a couple of pieces of paper at your table, um, and I'll kind of go over those with you in just a minute. But let's see if there are any things that are kind of rumbling through your mind as you walk the uh, woods or went down to the lake or took a nap. Yeah, hard telling. Different levels of hurt. Great question. Um, hold on to that one because I'm going to come to that when we talk more about uh, the depth of hurt because it has to do with the different levels and different ways in which hurt has an impact on our being, if you will. So, cool. So, you can ask a question, I'm just not going to answer it. How's that? <laughs> Yeah, I know. All right. Joseph, 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 Joseph. <clears throat> Let's remember the story of Joseph together. Who was Joseph? <laughs> Good, we're on the right page. Right number Testament. 11. J number 11. Jacob's son. And what happened, what, tell me a little bit about the story. Remind us. Say it again. Yeah, he, he was part of a family. <laughs> oh, yes. Any youngest here? Any other youngest people in your family? Yeah, yeah. The youngest of many. And they didn't all get along as brothers are prone to do sometimes, or family members are prone to do. And what did his brothers help him, uh, what, did, what did he end up, where'd he end up? How'd he get there? The bottom of the pit. So we've seen Joseph in the many uh, colors, right? <clears throat> okay. The favored son was betrayed by his siblings. Ended up in a place of privilege as a result. And ended up doing some interesting and remarkable work in the place of privilege. There are many Hebrew Bible stories. Think about Esther where someone from very common, ordinary places end up in places of power and privilege, which makes a difference in the way that the story unfolds. So Joseph ended up in a land with plenty, and his brothers ended up in a land with? Yeah, right. <laughs> this would be called retaliation, right? Yes. Uh-huh. Karma. <laughs> yeah. karma. Karma, that would be called karma, yes. 
So the brothers ended up needing to go to Joseph in order to be fed. Yeah. In order to save those around them. And then there's this lovely little dance about did they recognize him or not and who recognized who when and the father gets into this and eventually the father dies, the brothers go back home. And I just want to pick it up in the la- uh, kind of the last few verses of the ch- uh, chapter 50 of Genesis, kind of the middle of, toward the end. And just listen for the role of the brothers the role of Joseph and the role of God, because each of them have a different part in this kind of narrative. So they buried his father. Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. Realizing that their father was dead, Joseph's brothers said, what if Joseph still bears a grudge against us? and pays us back in full for all the wrong that we did to him. So they approached Joseph saying, your father gave this instruction before he died. (laughs) Say to Joseph, I beg you, forgive the crime of your brothers and the wrong they did in harming you. Now therefore, please forgive the crime of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also wept, fell down before him and said, we are here as your slaves. But Joseph said to them, do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Even though you intended to do harm to me, God intended it for good in order to preserve a numerous people as God is doing today. So have no fear. I myself will provide for you and your little ones. In this way, Joseph reassured them, speaking kindly to them. So what do you hear? What kind of things struck you in that reading? What did you hear? Yeah. I'm fascinated that there's uh, no indication that uh, Jacob said anything. They made yeah. They made that up, perhaps. So sometimes when we're in tight spots, oops, I was going to use a political term for a moment. We have facts that are alternative. Um, So we don't know really what the father said. The narrative doesn't... You have to make that up. Right, precisely. Text, then it's not there. See, Bright turns out really good. <laughs> Scholars, <laughs> PhDs. Okay, so we don't know what Joseph's father said. What else? What else did you hear in the story? After all those years, there's still a lot of emotion. Ah, how do you know that? Say more. Say one more sentence. Well, just the tears, you know, when they came and they finally asked for forgiveness, even though it may have been. Yep, very nice. So there's uh, some kind of emotions going on, at least at the levels of tears, and this word fear comes up quite often. 
Say it again. Guilt. One would hope there's guilt <laughs> in some way. So the last part was? The forgiveness process was not done in relationship with him. Oh, interesting. So um, that Joseph had decided he was going to forgive the brothers. And there's a kind of way in which if you read the story from one kind of perspective, you might think Joseph is kind of playing with them, right? Yeah. Like, oh, go ahead and beg and go ahead and, right? At the same time, you have this kind of sense of, I'm curious um, what it was like for Joseph to have to figure out how to navigate this new relationship, which is part of the challenge of forgiveness. If forgiveness changes a relationship and the dynamics of a relationship, you have to figure out how to navigate a new way of being together, whether you're brothers or partners or churches or whatever. So yeah, it's a nice point. Yeah. Yes, nice. So who has more power when at what point in time? Yeah, nice point. So um, I might uh, say it a little bit differently just because of the way I think. Um, Joseph had more power and he knew that he had more power. The brothers knew he had more power. And yet, did the brothers have any power? Nice, nice, nice. See, that's my pastor right there. Uh huh. They were hoping that the father's power would transfer to the sons. My, our father said for you to do this in some way. Interesting. What other power did the brothers have? Say it again. They're together. Together. Yes. Yeah. They had the power of numbers. <laughs> Yeah. Say it again. Oh yeah, big brothers. Yeah. Being part of a family. There, there is a kind of wondering about if the power, in some ways, of the brothers was their willingness to confess, even though they blamed it on the father. <laughs> but it does say, um, "Hear the crime." Um, his brothers also wept, fell down before him and said, we are here as your slaves. So there's a kind of way in which the brothers responded and used their agency, their power, if you will, to make a response that they didn't have to make. They could have done it a different way. They could have gone in with um, might of sword and started a war instead of negotiating with Joseph. Anything else about this text that hits you as you? Yeah, that there's uh, at no point did either, well, in the story, if you read back a few verses in the chapter, you get a sense that Joseph might 
hold this over the brothers in some way. And there is that kind of playfulness of, oh, am I going to be nice? Am I not going to be nice? How am I going to do this? But there's also the sense that Joseph, um, like one might wonder what Joseph, uh, what the wisdom of Joseph came to be because of his journey. That his journey was not his brother's journey. And in some ways he had to learn how to navigate the world in ways that they did not have to learn. Our scars, our hurts and our pains we oftentimes see as things that we wish we could get away from or do away with, and yet they are the very things in some way that sometimes save us in times of trouble, sometimes give us a kind of wisdom that we would not have were it not for those scars or those labors or those trials or those tribulations. One does not know what one's life would have been like lived another way. And I think one of the challenges in thinking about past and pain and suffering and sorrow is to figure out how not to hold up the past and the scars we have as if they're well-won victories and they've made us all better, and how not to deny them on the other hand. How do you live with them, reckon with them, if you will, and allow them to become part of the gift to the world? And we don't often teach people how to do that in this day and age, uh, as well as I wish we did. There's one last piece of this that I, at the very end, after the you intended it uh, to harm and God intended it for good, uh, this very last sentence, so have no fear. I myself will provide for you and your little ones. There's a way in which forgiveness and the relationality of forgiveness, the changing of the relationships, has a generational theme. Just like earlier in the text we read from Exodus this morning, there was that little piece about, and your sins will visit the generations to follow you. Here it's, I'm going to take care of you and the next generation. I'm going to pass this forward, if you will, in a way that's countercultural, and in a way that the culture and the society probably did not always know um, how to respect either. Anything else about Joseph? Yeah. I think it was interesting that although he had experienced retaliation from Pharaoh, that that, that was not at all yeah. part of his way of dealing with the situation. Very nice. Yeah. So. The forget when one opts for and notice I said opt when one opts for the paths of forgiveness rather than retaliation or retribution, one interrupts cycles. Right? The cycles of injustice or the cycles of blame, the cycles of shame get interrupted in ways that change the dynamics of people around you that change not just me, but change the generations to follow. If one holds on to retaliation or one holds on to bitterness, perhaps you've experienced some uh, family friend who remained bitter years after something happened. We know those folks. And what they pass on to the next generation is, yeah, kind of bitterness or a kind of self-protection. You, um, you always have to protect yourself because no one else is going to watch out for you. 
which walls us off from one another in a way that isolates and in a way that does not invite forth community and invites protectionalism. And forgiveness, when one opts for that path, one interrupts this kind of self-protective way of being in the world. And the possibilities become, I think, much richer. Yeah, it's a powerful story, thanks. So, um, that's agency, to shape one's narrative in a way that gives you a future story that's different than the one you had in the past. <clears throat> Andy Lester, some of you know Andy Lester's work, bless his soul. Um, but he had this uh, beautiful vision about thinking about how the future story, how living into something, if you will, in the present, how having a future story, a future narrative to which you move toward gives you a kind of hope that you cannot get if you live simply in a moment or in a past. And it really does um, shift the way in which we think about time, doesn't it? Because he's still the same person, but he's not the same person. Your brother 
went to Costa Rica and came back, still has the same beingness, and yet he's not the same person. And the way in which I think that, that um, illustrates for us, demonstrates, invites us to think about how is it that we shape, even in the telling of the story, our way of being in the world and invite others into it? Because that's a very, yeah, powerful one. So Joseph and his brothers are not unlike us, except um, probably that some writer of sacred text framed the story for us in a way that invited us to think about God's presence. So where was God in the midst of all of that? There was that little line, God intended it for good. I don't know what to do with that sometimes. Because um, God intends for good, and we still have people who are really good who end up in really horrible situations. So what does that mean to you, God intends it for good? How do you interpret that? Looking at LP to see if she wants to take it on. <laughs> How do you interpret that? Because in some ways it's, it's a, one of the uh, centerpieces of the story. Does it mean that God always makes things work out and God knows the answer before we even do it and God has a magic plan that we're all going to move toward? That would certainly be one way to interpret it. My own sense is that God's, if you think about what God intends for us as people who um, can live in right relationship, as people who are on the side of justice, as people who walk a walk that's not just our own personal spiritual narrative, but one that's connected to people beyond us and indeed shapes the world. If you think about God's intentions as inviting us into a life where we can flourish rather than diminish, and not just us, but everyone into a world where we can flourish, then that opens up that narrative in a whole different way. God intends good, and yet we know that these things happen. Yeah. Uh, nice, I and I like the way you said it. You didn't say it this way, which I would have like had to come back and say, really, you think that? <laughs> God's trying to teach us something, or this happens so that we can learn something. That one you want to stay away from, right? But the opportunities for us to gain wisdoms and insights and ways of being in the world from our experiences that, are, that, that we oftentimes label as bad experiences which is an interesting thing. These are not bad experiences. They are experiences that create in us some bad feelings. But experiences are not judgeable in that sense. They're experiences. And that's a kind of way of, again, opening up the narrative. So I passed out a couple pieces of paper. We're going to start with the one that says, whatever day, time this is, 2.30. Only I have to find my notes.
Okay, <clears throat> I'm going to, uh, at one point I thought I'd write a great big thick book instead of that little book. So I came up with a great big thick definition or description of forgiveness, so you get it because it's not written down anywhere. And it has these uh, five parts that are right at the top, the forgiveness is, so listen for them. And as I read this, um, Underline the places that you go, yep, that's that sounds right. This is right. And circle those places where you go, mm, I'm not so sure about that. Because you don't have to agree with what I say. It's just we're going to have a great conversation. So, Okay, here it goes. <clears throat> Forgiveness is a subversive and relational process that occurs as persons, families, or communities move away from the overwhelming power of a hurt in their lives toward reconciliation and liberation. The deeper the hurt to the internal world of the family, individual, or community, the longer and more complex the process of forgiveness becomes, or the more people that are involved in it, the more complex the process is. The goal of forgiveness is not the forgiveness itself. Rather, the goal of forgiveness is to be freed to participate in ongoing activities of liberation and justice. Forgiveness is integral to the larger process of God's liberative activity in the world. Yeah. Yes. Sorry. Anybody else need some? Wow. I missed, did I miss that whole row? Oops. Yep. Thank you because I need it. A few more. Raise your hand if you need one. Sorry, I just missed that row. Okay, so what in that uh, paragraph made sense to you? What do you like? Subversive. You like subversive. <laughs> yeah, we're going to come back to subversive because it's the word that everybody goes, eh, let's see, do I like it? I like it a lot or I don't like it at all. It's, there's no middle ground on that one, yeah. Okay, nice. We'll start, we'll start there and we'll come back to subversive. <laughs> so the deeper the hurt, um, particularly to the internal world. So if you shake my world enough, it's going to take me longer to recover. Uh, if I stub my toe, I might be able to get up and walk right away again. If I break my foot, it's going to take me longer to recover. So if you think about the internal world, not just our own feelings, but again, our ideas, our commitments, our values, when those get hurt deeply or when they get hit hard, it's going to take us longer to kind of figure out what to, actually, it takes us longer to figure out that something happened to us in the very beginning. Because usually it's a rather traumatic or abrupt or painful thing, and you have to have that space from it that we talked about a little bit earlier. Um, so that part of what is fun about forgiving people is that it's not like you mark the, mo the time and the moment and the date when you were hurt and by whom. Because that would like be every day, every hour, every, right? You recognize that in the world around us, Things are going to hurt. And you have resiliency enough to say, something's hurt a little and I can get myself back up again. 
some things really hurt and I need to sit or lay down or drop to my knees and it may take me a long time to get up. And one of the things that I want to encourage people to do is to not try to mark the time of forgiveness because it's not about the length because it's, it's an it's a, it's a, um, ongoing process. Uh, Greg Jones, who's now at Baylor University but was once at Duke, um, brother to Scott, used to talk, uh, he has a wonderful book on forgiveness which I love and I disagree with a whole lot so it's really great to read it. Um, but part of what I really like is its emphasis on these are habits and practices of the heart that become ingrained in our way of being in the world. So that you don't stop and say, now am I gonna forgive this or not? You become a forgiving person or you become a forgiving church and a forgiving community without counting all of the notches that someone has hit you with. But the reality is that when you are marginalized in any way or when oppression has been the kind of norm in which you've been understood or interpreted, had your life interpreted for you, when you become objectified in any way, the problem is your resources to come back from hurt keep getting used up in ways that don't help you just get up and walk on. You have to sit down more often. And what we don't recognize is the kind of cumulative damage that happens through oppression or through marginalization, through racism, sexism, heterosexism, that it's not like you just say to someone, could you just get over it? You really do have to give people spaces and time, and there's so much change that has to happen inside the one who has the power to do the harm that the process extends itself uh, incredibly long. Think about, think about the Holocaust. How many years ago was that? And we're still trying to wrestle with what does it mean that we participated in it then and continue to participate in Holocaust's ethnic cleansing now. So that it's not a momentary thing, it's a very long thing. The other piece that this recognizes is that the more people you have involved in any one chaotic moment, the more extensive the process usually is. So if it's between um, a friend, two friends, they can work out the process, they can do the dance they need to do, they can kind of figure out how to do it. But even with two people, here's what happens. Let's say I'm the one who was hurt by my friend. We'll call my friend Alice. Say, Alice hurt me. So I'm the one uh, who had the power to do the hurting. Yeah, the other, right? The other had the power to hurt me. Or at least that's the way the narrative is told. Isn't that interesting? Well, and sometimes we don't have a choice and sometimes we give it over to, we become victims in ways that we don't even recognize. So even that is a very nuanced kind of moment in time, right? So then let's say that um, I'm kind of ready to kind of move on and I say, okay, I figured out what happened. Here's what I think happened. And in my retelling of the story, what happens? 
yeah, the harm goes the other way. So then you have to, okay, so now, now you have double, double harms, right? Now, if you're keeping score, this is part of the problem. Um, those, those who have been in kind of long-term relationships, partnerships, um, know that there are some, it, it doesn't, let's see, how do I want to say it? Some habits of fighting that do not easily go away. And you know how to actually get the other person to respond. Not any of you in this room, of course, but some of my clients <laughs> at times know how to get the other person to respond. Like if I say this, and it's not like you sit there and go, if I say this, then they'll say this. It just is the way it is. So it's not like you can say this person is the one who harmed me. It is that in this relationship, something happened to fracture the trust of the relationship. I think you were the one that mentioned trust. To fracture the trust of the relationship or to fracture some sense of my own beingness. Now multiply that by the number of people that live in your church. So when you're fighting over the color of the carpet or whatever it is, think about the number of ways that you don't even have a clue that someone is walking around wounded. So we have in all of us a kind of ability to walk around wounded. And we know how to live and exist in that most of the time. Um, I oftentimes say that if if pastors and, and folks doing pastoral care could uh, recognize the wounds that we don't even know exist in someone, our tolerance and our kindness would increase exponentially because everybody has some kind of wound that we don't know is walking around inside of them. So then you get in this complex thing called church or family or, I mean, big families or whatever it is, and you have more people and more hurt because it's happening in ways that you don't intend and can't even track, which is part of, I think, the reality. And I think it's actually good that we can't track it. Because once you start tracking it, what do you want to do? <laughs> Say it again. Yeah, you want to fix it, and you want to fix that one, and then we'll work on this one, and then as if they're all not related, but they are all more related than not. So this requires a kind of complex way of thinking about relationships. That relationships are not one directional and that lots of things influence relationships, friendships, communities, churches. So thinking about how we do forgiveness when there is not just a carpet at stake, but you take that carpet out, it was my grandmother's. I'm not gonna let you over my dead body are you getting rid of this sanctuary carpet right? I got married here, whatever it is. Okay. What else makes sense about this definition? Yeah. Okay, yeah, this is an important one. Thanks. So the other thing that happens is we get focused on the end point. We want to do the forgiveness. We want to be forgiven. We want to forgive. So we focus on the end point. And when you start focusing on the end point, other things begin to drop out like the relationship. <laughs> and the end becomes the most important thing and any way you can get to that end becomes doable. The other thing that happens is when forgiveness becomes the goal, 
you think that really all of life is about forgiveness. And honestly, it's not. Forgiveness is one piece of our great big lives. And not everything is about forgiveness. We're going to talk a little bit um, either later today or tomorrow morning about, um, for example, uh, mental illness is not something you have to forgive. It's something you have to accept. Now, there are behaviors that might go with that that you want to forgive. That's different. But if you focus on the goal, you miss the opportunity to actually free yourself up to do God's good work in all kinds of ways. So uh, I'm trying to take off the pressure of having a goal, the end, in mind, because then it allows you to do the process. And to actually, uh, this won't sound quite right, but to play in the process, to linger in the process. Um, There are some uh, people who have done some work on forgiveness who will tell you this is what you have to do first, and then you have to do this, and then you have to do this, and then you'll get to forgiveness. Um, And I understand those kind of logical steps, but I haven't met too many logical people or relationships. (laughs) So I think that probably we skip around in these steps. There are some predictable things, like something has to happen that raises somebody's consciousness that there's a hurt that's, that's, uh, or an injury that's occurred. And something has to happen to raise feelings, because if you don't get the feelings in the process, they'll come out some other time. Something has to happen along the way in terms of repentance, which is I'm going to change this part of me so that I don't get hurt again or so that I don't participate in this again in the same way. And there's got to be some kind of way in which the movement kind of, or the end, not an end, but a kind of culmination that says, I can never be with this person again in any meaningful way, but I'm going to pray God's best intentions for them into the future. We'll come back to that one in a minute. Yeah. yeah I kind of want to mention that you use the definition of goal when talking process. So I was thinking, if you flip it around and say forgiveness is not the goal, and then continue, I, I don't like the goal part of the definition because you're just coming in there. And the process, yeah. the process of any goal Yeah, nice. Yeah, good reading. Yeah, nice, nice. Good, good read, yeah. Good ex, yeah. Yeah, because ultimately what forgiveness does is it gives us more liberative activity, gives us more liberative energy, gives us a way to be in the world that's different than retaliation, gives us a way to think about justice that's not, that perhaps restores people in relationships rather than puts people away. Yeah, it's a good, that's a good point. Yeah. The which piece? The, the, the power of yes, the yes. The power of the hurt. That's really nice. It becomes the center of one's life. Yes. Um, it becomes it becomes the definer of your personhood. This happened to me, and therefore, mm-hmm. it does. And so, decentering that sometimes takes a lot of work because sometimes that pain is really powerful in a moment. But if it, that moment lasts for 40 years, which it does sometimes, 
decentering it and figuring out how am I a person and this happened to me? How am I a child of God and this happened to me? That's different than saying I am this and oh yeah, maybe I'm a child of God, I'm not sure. Yeah, nice. So let's go to that little word, yeah. Yeah, that's good. Good. I don't need your forgiveness. Yeah, that would make me angry too. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so there's some, uh, this, is, uh, this goes back to the Craybill kind of stuff on the uh, book about the uh, uh, school where the children were killed. So if forgiveness is your theological core and you get up and live and breathe forgiveness as in that's so much a part of your tradition that you cannot not do it, um, they, uh, folks will say, I forgive you, as they did in that particular um, moment in time, uh, the Charleston shootings in the church. And yet, forgiveness in that case, I would, not be, I would not define it as I have done a process and I am kind of at peace with it. It is, I'm gonna say this until I really believe it, until it really happens. And this, you, your story is, this is a movie, isn't it? Yeah, um, I've seen that movie. It's, um, it's in Korean, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and the, the power of that piece is the reminder that you never can control what the other person does or says, and you have to do your own process while also at the same time recognizing that you are intimately connected to that person in some way. So in this case, and cases where there's particularly large trauma, the, the families of Charleston will never be able to live without remembering Dylan Roof, right? It's just gonna be there. Whether they say his name or not, whether they recognize him or not, they are intimately tied in a way that none of the rest of us are tied to him. And yet, they have to do their processes in a way that, that, is their own, that has their own integrity and recognize that the other, they can't control what the other person does. And it does create kind of complicated, which is why it's so long. It takes so long. Because darn, if they'd done it right, <laughs> right? Yeah. What do you think about the phrase, freedom from the tyranny of the many? Yeah, that's nice. I've heard something like that, um, uh, <clears throat> that, it's, that again, it's, it's the, it doesn't have the same power. It is there. It's not so powerful. It doesn't grab you in the same way. Which is why I think, oh, go ahead. Wouldn't that not also be healing a bit? 
uh, uh, nice. Uh, nice, because forgiveness is part of healing. They're not synonymous, but they are integra integrated together. They relate to each other. Just like there are some other pieces of forgiveness, like laments. You lament about things that are not about forgiveness, the loss of a loved one. Um, so it's not that the processes are the same, but they are connected at various points. Yeah, that's a nice point. So let's go back to that little word subversive. <laughs> so those of you who find that a helpful, uh, let's do the other first. Those of you who find that a troubling word or word where you go, really? What do you, what do you hear in it? Hidden? Okay. Sneaky. sneaky, that's better. <laughs> it's not just hidden, it's sneaky. And forgiveness is. It sneaks up on you. Right? I didn't know I needed to forgive. My gosh, it snuck up on me. So the word, some of us remember the 60s. Subversive... <laughs> Those of us who were subversive in the 60s are now old enough to know better, right? Um, and to be subversive in the 60s meant what? Anti-establishment. Yep. It was a way of recognizing that there is a power beyond you that you want somehow to use to overturn something. So subvert, if you think about the word sub, meaning under, like a submarine, sub. Vert has kind of uh, interesting um, connections towards like inversion, conversion. When you convert somebody, what do you do? Yeah, it's, it's actually, you change them with something, right? With, con meaning with, so they're changed to a, to a denomination because of a conversion, for example converted with something. So sub, and uh, to be under, and to use the power and the leverage of, of things like feelings to change the dynamics and overturn the power. So here's how this works. Uh, let's go back to Joseph. Joseph did not have the power to get himself out of that pit. It, he just didn't have it. He was the youngest. He couldn't fight 11 brothers, and who knows how deep the pit was. But the power is never stagnant. It's always changing. And at the end of the story of Genesis, at least, jo the power has been overturned, and yet, because this is a relationship, there is still power among the brothers. Power is never one-directional. It's never one-dimensional. It's never like, I have power and you don't have any power. I have power right now because I have a microphone and you all are nice people doing what Bob tells you to do, sit in your chair and be good, right? <laughs> but you could all get up and leave. Don't do that, but you could. <laughs> you have power. You just have to access it, get a little organized, be strategic figure out who's gonna go first so everybody can follow. <laughs> so power is never pure, like I have it and you don't. It's always kind of um, dynamic and flowing. And part of what forgiveness does is it subverts the power itself and makes it transformative. 
So my anger might become the ally in something. Like I think Joseph probably survived because he found some anger somewhere along the way. And that anger gave him the energy, the power, whatever it was, to do more than survive, but actually to thrive and to flourish. So there's a way in which a hurt and a damage can never be the last word if you recognize that power is always constantly changing and moving. And forgiveness, it doesn't just interrupt cycles, but it subverts them. It subverts uh, particularly shame and blame. Because if I can never say, I have no power and you always have power over me and therefore I feel bad, I can never say that. You can, I can never blame you for every part of my life. Children can never blame you parents for every part of their, now you might have done something, but they can't blame you for everything, right? And you can't blame whatever institution for every part of your existence. Forgiveness actually says, now what part do I want to hold you accountable for and what parts do I want to fight in a different way? So the forgiveness process gives you some agency to make choices about what you'd like to change in a relationship or what you'd like to see changed in a relationship, recognizing that you alone don't have the power to change the relationship. Does that make sense? There are lots of other ways that um, it becomes subverting of shame in particular because if I have to feel guilty all the time because I am a human being and I hurt somebody, eventually that just becomes shame that gets toppled on top of me over and over and over again and um, I can't get out of it by myself. Having a forgiveness process helps interrupt that cycle so the shame and the blame don't become so dramatic and so decisive in a moment. All right, how you doing? <laughs> this is simple stuff, okay. Um, we've already talked about some of these, the rush to premature forgiveness. Um, particularly in Christian community because we like kindness and goodness. We think the sun should set on our anger and that means the sun we see in the sky today. Uh, how do you really know when the sun sets? Because it's somewhere else in the world up. So we jump and rush to, oh, let's get this process done so that we can all feel better. So Marie Fortune, who does a lot of work with um, survivors of domestic violence and clergy misconduct, oftentimes says that the ones who have the most power at any moment, whether it's the church or a culture or a community or whatever, always want the ones who have the most experience of harm to get over it and get on with it so that we can feel better. It doesn't work. Neither do we end up feeling better, nor is it possible to get on with it. So watch for premature closures. Like, you may have a moment when you say, now this, because this is a cycle, or I mean, because these are kind of processes, you may have a moment when you said, I've done some really hard work, and I've kind of lamented some things, 
And now I just need to rest there and let that soak in. I just need to be there for a while. And then I'll get up and figure out what the next piece is. You don't have to do it all at once. You don't have to do it in the same day. You don't have to do it in a three-day format. You can do it whenever you find your spirit being moved to do it with God. It takes the pressure off of getting it done soon. Um, I think we've talked about most of these other pieces. How about that? Okay, I want to do one last piece, and then I'm going to turn you loose for where it says mending yet not restored. My assumption is that most of us are in processes of mending relationships most of our lives, even if it's small, uh, small fractures that happen. Um, John Gottman, who's a marriage and family therapist, a marriage therapist in particular, talks about repairs and bids that um, in intimate relationships, for example, you disappoint one another. I know, it's hard to believe, right? You, dis you disappoint one another at some minor moment and it becomes big. Well, then you have to figure out how to repair the damage. It's not penultimate damage, it's just a little wound. How do you repair that? How do you reckon with it? And usually we do that by apologies. And there's an art to an apology. So on the other piece of paper. Uh, in, in our world, we have politics of apology, as I say. Um, that um, we've learned how to do an effective apology so we don't get sued. So one of my friends whom I like a great deal actually works with hospitals to teach the doctors how to apologize, because why? It lowers lawsuits. Because if you think that I'm actually invested in you and I say I did this wrong, it will genuinely, now I think that's an interesting business model, but more importantly, I think it becomes a political exchange in a way that I wanna kinda of say, well that's interesting, there's something in there that's happening to um, the person in the hospital, for example, and yet there's something transformative that happens when somebody acknowledges that they made a mistake. But we have to be careful about how we do apologies. So this is actually from a woman named Marsha Wagner who's done a lot of work on, uh, particularly in university campuses, about how to help college students do apologies. They don't learn it. <laughs> you have to learn how to do an apology. And she has a format, and it's very clear but it includes things like what we talked about in lament, a common understanding of the exact substance and nature of the offense. Now the key word there is, I would say a mutual understanding, which requires conversation, but I have to be able to say what I think happened and I have to be able to articulate it. You have to be able to articulate it or whoever else is involved in the fracturing. And then we have to kind of get to a common understanding and that usually takes some work. But if I start an apology with, here's what I think happened. We were, I'll just use an illustration from uh, last week. We were going to schedule a time to meet for dinner at 5.30. And I got involved in a, this doesn't happen to you, I got involved in a project at work, which I thought was a crisis, it really was not, but it was a crisis to me. So I called and canceled and you had arranged a really important thing that we were going to do, and you were not just disappointed, 
but felt personally like that was uh, not nice. So if I just say that much, I've at least acknowledged my part in it. And I've said, this is what I think happened. And it gives the other person a chance to do whatever they need to do to correct my thinking or to change my thinking. It has a sense of accountability on the part of the one who offended. Like I could have used other, I could have decided that I really wanted to meet you at 5.30 and I could have put this on hold. Uh, there's an acknowledgement of the pain that happened or the embarrassment or whatever it is that uh, occurred. Then there's a sense, uh, she uses the word judgment, which I'm not real keen on, but I, it, she's getting the right point, which is um, you have to take responsibility for saying, I was wrong. I just, I shouldn't have done it. I was wrong. I should have figured out how to do this differently. And I hope in the future, I'll remember this moment so I don't have to do this again. <laughs> so that was, that's an apology, that's rather simple. But in complex situations, they become quite complex and complicated. So think about if there's some way in which you want to forward an apology to someone, or if there's a way in which you wish someone would apologize to you, because here's the key. If there's someone that you think really owes you an apology, it does not work when you go to them and say, I need you to apologize. Usually that doesn't work. But if you get clear in your own mind about what it is you think they need to apologize for, then you have a conversation. Then you have a way to move forward. So write the apology you would like to receive. And pay attention to how it might change the dynamics of the relationship. So how would it change, um, I, I uh, um, there's a church in Wisconsin, in Kenosha, Wisconsin, that back in the uh, maybe 80s, 70s, 80s, um, a pastor was removed from that church for reasons that are less important, but they, it was uh, what some of us uh, considered an injustice. That church, last week, invited that pastor to return to that church to give an apology. And it was transformative for not just that church and that pastor, but for all of us who were witnessing it. It changed something. It changed the dynamics of that moment. Apologies can be incredibly life-changing. So think about if there's a place that you want to apologize or want to ask for an apology. Um, if you're not at that point, you might continue to just kind of wrestle with what God is nudging into your life in this moment. Where are you at? What are you thinking about? Where's the nudge, the spirit blowing you into new direction? And I think we're at the time, are we not? So go with peace and grace and may the knowledge of the grace of God sink from your heads down into your hearts and souls so that it flows out of your hands and your mouth and your ears and your eyes so that this body might be the body of Christ in the world. Amen. Amen.